Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. This week, we have Jay Bennett as a guest and co-host. We're going to be discussing Van Halen's debut record. How you doing, Jay? Very well, sir. And yourself? Under the circumstances, I'm doing well. And uh, yeah. I'm glad to be able to talk to you about this record because Van Halen is one of my all-time favorite bands. Absolutely, man. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I love me I love me some Halen, and I, uh, I live very close to and have some good friends over in Pasadena, which is also known as Van Halen country in these parts. <laughs> We're also going to talk a little bit about Fair Warning, which is, uh, I think that probably should go down as one of their classic records but i think that you have to give respect where respect is due and since this record is probably one of the strongest debuts out of any band and also has a ton of hits on it yeah might might edge out fair warning just a little bit because though i love that record there's there wasn't like the the commercial power on that record that was displayed on the van halen debut record yeah that is that is true um, I, I, you know, I, find, I, 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 in going back and like preparing for this, I would, I would, um, because, you know, I was, uh, I was one year old when this record came out. Um, but I, what, so I didn't, what I didn't realize was that the first single released from Van Halen one was actually, you, you really got me the kinks cover. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that, um, which seems like such an odd way to, uh, I mean, I, I, I guess I can, I, I, no, I know, I take it back. I don't understand why they did it. I, I know that I had read that Eddie Van Halen's choice was Janie's Crying, and to me that makes way more sense. Um, or, I mean, Ain't Talking About Love, of course, which they eventually did release as a single. Um, but uh, I, I was shocked to learn that, that it came out as a single before the album. Uh, and I have to say, um, you know, the covers on Van Halen 1, Ice Cream Man and You Really Got Me are my least favorite tracks. I I prefer when Van Halen does originals. Yeah. Um, and uh, which is also the reason, incidentally, uh, that I don't like Diver Down. It's like half covers. You know? Yeah, totally. That that's uh, that's definitely on the bottom of the list for me is Diver Down. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I said, it's all it's all covers. But uh, yeah. So anyway, let's like, let's run down some of the uh, particulars about the record before we get into the uh, breakdown of everything here. So. So Van Halen 1 was released on February 10th, 1978. Yeah. Recorded August 30th through September 1977. Came out on Warner Brothers and was recorded at Sunset Sound Recorders in Hollywood, California. And this little bit of information is interesting because it was produced by one Ted Templeman who had worked with Mm. the Doobie Brothers as well as Montrose, which features Sammy Hagar would yep. later as we all know join van halen yeah so interesting a, connection there yeah. yeah there's a little foreshadowing with the plot there you know yeah exactly and uh though most people um if probably know this already the personnel on this record was eddie van halen on guitar alex van halen on drums david lee roth vocals michael anthony on bass and backing vocals and i have to say 
Michael Anthony is probably one of the most underrated back backing singers in rock history, in my opinion. That's absolutely true, man. And I, I, I think I, I certainly, I think as a little kid getting into this record, when I first probably first, I always associate Van Halen with MTV, you know. Yeah. And that's how I was kind of introduced to them. Um, I mean, I, I probably heard them on the radio. But they really, it, it really kind of like gelled for me seeing them on MTV, you know. And of course, when you're a kid, you don't appreciate, um, you know, a little something like you, you see the showmanship and you can appreciate that as a little kid. But you, you're not kind of drilling down to the details like Michael Anthony's backing vocals, um, which um, really make it uh, for so much, so many of the songs um, really tie the room together. Yeah, you might say. Um, and it's a shame that it seems like, from what I can gather, that um, you know Eddie Van Halen has kind of tried to diminish his role, I guess, in in later years. It's kind of a, a drag. Um, but I like that both Diamond Dave and Sammy Hagar um, have have gone out of the way to kind of stick up for Michael Anthony. So I, I I appreciate that, you know. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially when they drop into those choruses, you know, his uh, you know his voice really contrasts the sort of gruff you know gravelly voice that david lee roth has you know and it just i yeah. thought even as a young kid i was like oh that sounds really cool i didn't really quite know how to articulate that when i was listening to this as a young a young lad but uh so the program yeah. length the record is 35 minutes and 34 seconds long which perfect sits right perfectly well into that uh, you know late seventies eighties long playing record format and yeah uh, side one we have running with the devil eruption you really got me by the kinks yep <laughs> and talk yep. about love I'm the one and then side two kicks off with Jamie's crying into atomic punk feel feel your love tonight little dreamer ice cream man the other cover and on fire yeah yeah and what what uh what's interesting yeah it's like talking about what you what you mentioned earlier is that they chose a cover and not only was it a cover but it's not even an obscure song i mean the kinks had a fucking hit with this song in the 60s yeah yeah it, yeah it's a it's a bizarre choice and and i you know i have to say i it's probably one it, I listen. I actually still listen to the radio a lot. I'm probably one of one of the the, <laughs> the few people who still listens to like comer, the commercial hard rock like station that plays like 70s and 80s stuff. Yeah. The I will as a rule I never change Van Halen. If Van Halen comes on, I all I love it. I'm psyched. I turn it up. Except for the, if this song, I don't need to hear this ever again. Their cover of "You Really Got Me." Now. I don't. I don't. I don't like when Van Halen do covers. I just. I don't. It doesn't. I don't know. I don't. I don't like that song. Well, I mean, the thing is, too, it's like this is uh, the era of uh, bar, like bar bands, basically. And Van Halen yeah. was, I mean, and they actually were criticized by about this by um, by some of the press when this record came out. Is like, you know, a lot a lot of the more the snarkier journalists that were maybe writing for the cooler magazines like the Village Voice or Rolling Stone. You know, they they were embracing more like the punk and new wave world, which was happening around that time. Uh, would often, you know, they made comments about how Van Halen was the the best bar band in L.A. or something like that. And right, you know, and back then, yeah, it was about making money. I mean, if you were a band, a local band, you did 
a covers set. You had, you know, a, a whole itinerary of of covers right. that you played and you were entertaining people and probably playing multiple sets a night. And, you know, a lot of these bands, Van Halen comes to mind, Twisted Sister, you know, they all had a covers catalog that they did. And um, and I guess that probably, I imagine even on Diver Down, a lot of that material, they, they probably were playing for like 15 years at that point, you know? No, oh, totally. But, but here's what blows my mind though. As you mentioned, like it wasn't an obscure King song. It was a hit, you know? And, and if you go back and kind of go back into the history of Van Halen and you can find this stuff on YouTube, they covered like Van Halen covered Budgie and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and if you think about how like someone, I think I'm, you and I are probably of the same generation who discovered Budgie through Metallica doing yep. covers of them uh, in, in whatever it was, 87, um, Garage Day ZP. I mean, imagine if, imagine if uh, Van Halen had covered Budgie on this record instead of the kinks you know what i'm saying like i mean that was when buddy was still like active and, and good you know yeah. i mean that would it would have been it would give him an even more uh uh an even bigger boost than it did um when metallica covered them and they could have like it might have changed the direction of buddy you know in a way it could have changed their careers but instead we get a kink song i mean granted you know, uh, Van Halen's version is like considerably more, um, you know, um, exciting, I guess you could say. Um, but, uh, I don't know, man. I just don't, I don't know why they did that. <laughs> yeah. It's puzzling. Cause I remember even as a kid, you know, back, you know, I was like, I don't know, like 12, I think when, when I heard this record. So it's like, yeah, the, um, you know, I, I was, it was familiar to me when I first heard it, you know what I mean? And I was like, huh, yeah. where, where have I heard, you know, you're a kid it's a small world you don't you're only it's not like now where kids can go to spotify and dial up anything you know and back then it's like you were really your the input of stimulus that was coming at you was limited by the radio and the television and then occasionally right. people would play you songs of bands that they liked and out of the kids that i knew the kinks were not a band that we listened to you know, we were into like Sabbath yeah. and like Led Zeppelin, Rush, you know, ACDC, Van Halen, you right. know. Right. But I did hear this song by the Kinks somewhere because when I heard the Van Halen version of it, I was like, this sounds so familiar. And then sure enough, you know, I, I was able to ask around because, you know, you couldn't go on the Internet and look it up. And someone, right. Right. an older guy, the same guy who actually played me this Van Halen record, played me the kinks version of the song too i mean this guy was like considerably older he was uh one of my buddy's sister's fiancés who was living at this house right. and he had this mammoth record collection he had every all the stuff that formed the way i listened to music can basically be um traced back to this one guy and yeah. uh and that one summer that he lived in this house you know, and we would go and hang out and he'd always be cranking the best music. And he was like, oh yeah, this, you know, this sounds familiar probably because he might've saw it on TV or whatever. And he played me the original and I was like, man, this is like fucking totally lame. You know, it's like, come on. Yeah. This is like, what yeah. is this? It's like some old man, old, like, you know, old shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's how I felt. That's how I felt at the time too. I don't think, I mean, I obviously have a much greater appreciation for the kinks now. Yeah. Um, 
Um, but, uh, you know, at the time, you know, as a little kid, it's like, yeah, I didn't want, that's like old people music. You didn't want to, I didn't want to hear that. Um, and I didn't even want to hear as much as I love Van Halen. I didn't want to hear them do it either. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. But, uh, but yeah, so let's just run down the, the singles real quick. Cause like, uh, since we're talking about it. So the first single was, you really got me with B-side atomic punk. That one of came, my favorites. Oh yeah. That, that, that's definitely one of my favorites. And that's, uh, you know, January, 1978. Um, Running with the Devil with Eruption as the B-side. Pretty, out, pretty outstanding right there. Pretty outstanding. Actually, you know, it's funny, man. Like, listening, we listened to this first record, like, as it, you know, as it, in order, basically. You know, dude put the, yeah. the vinyl on, and we listened to it. And Running with the Devil didn't really grab me, you know? Mm. And, because, uh, you know, if you listen to the first side, it's... It kicks off a running with the devil, then it goes into eruption, right? You know, running with the devil, I'd heard so much about uh, Van Halen's uh, in incredible guitar playing, you know, Eddie Van Halen. That song doesn't really display much of his ability, you know? And, um, you know, it's like a cool song, but he doesn't really shred in that song, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, it, 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 um, I mean, I think that's, it's kind of the, I appreciate the restraint on that song because it kind of showcases their songwriting a little bit. I love that song. Yeah. Um, and then I, I was kind of, I didn't know this. I, I kind of did a little research getting ready for this and I found out. Um, so apparently that sound that leads into the song, um, it's uh, car horns. And oh. it's actually, it's actually the car horns from the band's cars. Oh, wow slowed down by the producer they somehow slowed it down and and uh, and controlled it uh ted templeman made some sort of device where you could, could sl um he either did it uh, manually with the tape or but he had some sort of like um a battery powered foot pedal or something where he could set off the horns like himself like sitting there rather than sitting in the car um uh that's the sound before the song actually starts and then uh apparently the lyrics were inspired by um an Ohio Players song that was called Running From the Devil. Oh, right on, man. Cool. Yeah, that's where Diamond Dave got it from, uh, the inspiration anyways. Um, so some, I don't know. I, that, that's what I, I, you know, who knows? I, I kind of got that from different places, so that may or may not be uh, totally 100%, uh, you know, legit, but I don't know. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at that time for me, I didn't want to hear anything about restraint or like, you know, fucking guitar uh you know restraint <laughs> i wanted like just fucking full-on shit all the time so yeah i mean that song was cool and i was like all right yeah this is cool but like what what i heard this guy was like some next level genius guitar player and uh, you know i had just started playing guitar so i was like really interested in like people displaying their chops and then of course it goes right into eruption and my mind was like completely blown like I'd never heard anything remotely like that. Yeah, there's your guitar pyrotechnics right there. I mean, that was that that was that was the thing. I mean, I I I mean, I remember I remember like well into the '90s that was still being referred to as like the yeah. benchmark. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. You know? Yeah. You know, and though yeah. most people uh, give Eddie Van Halen credit for uh, you know developing that tapping technique. Yeah. Actually, uh, there's two other guitar players that predated him uh, with that technique. One was Steve Hackett of Genesis. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Harvey Mandel 
who played in Canned Heat and the Stones, you know, and he also had a solo career. You know, he played in a lot of records. And, yeah, to um, see the way I I heard that too, but I think though I think the way they distinguished it was that those guys were doing one-handed tapping, and yeah. Eruption was the first time that anyone had heard like two-handed tapping, like on a recording. Really? Okay. All right. I think that's I think that anyway that's like the nerd distinction that's made there okay. for that. Um, and apparently, uh, well, <laughs> so I, Van Halen, uh, I think in interviews had kind of referenced that they liked that they were into that band Cactus. Yeah. And um, so I found an interview with Carmen Apici, the drummer of Cactus, who um, says that uh, the beginning of Eruption was actually cribbed from a Cactus song called Let Me Swim. Um, and then I found another thing where apparently, and this sounds like something Eddie Van Halen would do, um, part of Eruption quotes a piece by a French composer named uh, Rudolf Kreutzer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and I don't know. I I had I had I, I forgot to write down the name of the piece. Um, um, but uh, that see that sounds like something Eddie Van Halen would do. And I, and I know they were Cactus fans, so I don't know. Um, I, I went back and listened to the Cactus thing just briefly, um, and uh, I don't. Maybe it's my maybe my ears aren't working. I couldn't necessarily hear the connection, but may, maybe there maybe it's there. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, man. That's that does sound uh, logical because uh, the Van Halen family was a very musical family. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and the both so, of the brothers were involved in like you know, piano and all this other stuff. And you know, it's funny to think that the Van Halen brothers were like a package deal. You know. Yeah. Like yeah. You know, they they started playing in bands together when they were like in fourth grade, I think. No, I remember. Um, I read. Uh, I'm I'm not I'm. I'm not a huge fan of the the Van Hagar era, Me um, but uh, I do I, pre, I do appreciate Sammy Hagar, and I read his book, and he he has some great uh, stories in there about his time in Van Halen. But one of which re related to what you were just talking about with the the kind of inseparableness of the brothers, and he says they'd be practicing uh, in I think it was Eddie's garage or something, and uh, you know they were like multimillionaires, like and they were still practicing like at the time. <laughs> At the time Sammy Hagar was there, they were multimillionaires. They were still practicing in Eddie's garage, right? <laughs> and so Alex, Alex Van Halen would like, would like, you know, they'd take a break. Alex Van Halen would like leave, go to the kitchen, and come back with just two beers, like one for him and one for his brother. Like he wouldn't get a beer for anybody else, like just him and Eddie. <laughs> That's fucking awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just uh, maybe a little background. Oh, actually, let's finish going through the singles here. So after. Um Running with the Devil and Eruption, we got Jamie's Crying and I'm the One, and the Jamie's Crying being being the single, the A side. Now that's yeah. the song that you you know I think we both can agree that that would be a red hot lead single for a band's debut record. Yeah, and it's, apparently it's what Eddie Van Halen wanted. Yeah, um, that was what his choice for the lead single. But uh, Ted Templeman and the record label. Um, were uh, they wanted the kinks cover so that's what we got yeah the next single was on fire with jamie's crying appearing as the b-side on that single weird that is weird, weird. right so it came out yeah, twice I, once as an a-side once as a b-side so i had i found some fun facts about both those songs too okay um this Jamie's crying thing, I, I I don't know why I never put this together before, but Tone Loke sampled it for Wild Thing in '89. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
yeah, I never, I don't know why, I, never, I guess I, I don't know, I, I don't know why I never made the connection. So, and then with On Fire, apparently even now, uh, On Fire has not been played live by Van Halen since 1984. <laughs> really? Yeah. Why do you think that it, is? I don't know, man. I don't know. It seems like, I mean, it, it's kind of like they jammed it at the end of the record. Um, and like almost like an afterthought, like after Ice Cream Man, which is like the ultimate afterthought. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, so I don't get it. I like I like On Fire. I, I think it's like it doesn't get its due. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I, I think I read some stuff that maybe it was something along the lines of there's some high parts that maybe Dave can't hit anymore. Oh, maybe, uh, yeah. But that seems to be the case for a lot of their, their songs that, 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 he, that he keeps doing, so I don't know, you know. And then the final single was uh, Ain't Talking About Love, A-Side with the B-Side, Feel Your Love Tonight. And, yeah. Um, now, all right, if I were to, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, what do I know? Um, I'm not like a uh, world-class uh, record producer or anything, but to me, Ain't Talking About Love would have been a, a great second single for this record, but it came out at the end of their whole or cycle. First, or first single, or first single. I love that song, man. Yeah. I, that song, I've heard that song thousands of times at this point, and it, still is, and it never gets old. I mean, I would say that uh, Ain't Talking About Love is um, one of my top favorite record songs on this record actually you know what i mean yeah oh absolutely that that one and atomic punks are mine and little dreamer man i love little dreamer but we'll, we'll i know we'll get to that one um yeah. but uh yeah ain't talking about love and atomic punk are my those are my jams man yeah and uh eddie, eddie didn't like apparently he wrote ain't talking about love in uh david lee roth's parents basement <laughs> uh and he thought it was like he thought he kind of wrote it it's kind of like similar to the story that you hear about um Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine, like they just, Eddie thought it was goofy and uh, didn't show it to the band for a long time. Um, uh, but then ultimately, you know, they, they ended up recording it. Um, and apparently he still doesn't necessarily hold it in the highest regard, but uh, I think it's one of their best songs, you know? I do too, man. And you know what, what's, what I think about all, all the time when I think about this particular record is uh it sounds like a bunch of guys playing in a in a room like in a practice space or something like that yeah you know, the whole vibe yeah. is like yeah i mean obviously i know the record wasn't recorded this way but that that's a testament to how well templeman maybe understood the vibe of the band you know what i mean that this is a band that's bread and butter is performing live like they're a bar band like they're used to playing in front of people in rooms and to, yeah. make, to make a record that, <clears throat> by all intents and purposes, sounds very raw to me. To this day, it still sounds like a very raw recording, you know what I mean, with not a lot of uh, production going, gone into it, you know? No, totally. That's a great point. And I think, you know, there's two things I think that should be mentioned about that. One is, there's a, there's a great book. I don't know if you read Van Halen Rising. No, I haven't. But I highly recommend it, dude. It's by this guy named Greg Renoff. And it's about Van Halen's early days, pre-Diamond Dave, uh, like basically up through the first record. And it talks about, I mean, they were a band for a long time before they got signed and did a record. So that, that sort of like bar band mentality is very much, um, I mean, they're playing back huge, massive backyard parties, thousands of people that would get shut down by the cops in Pasadena, um, playing bars all over the place, multiple sets a night, all that stuff. They had that kind of pedigree that you're talking about. Um, the second thing is, 
is that they demoed most of this record, maybe all of it. I, I have to go back and look at the track listing with Gene Simmons. Yep. Uh, yeah. And and those you can find that it's called Zero Demos, um, and you can find them. They sound fantastic. They sound great. And some of the songs are a little bit slightly different than what you hear on the record. Um, so it's kind of cool to hear how they developed. You know. Yeah. Apparently, the demo. Um, Gene thought the band had no future as a result of the, the demo sessions, <laughs> which I thought was like, wow, you know, so weird. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, Gene Simmons is, um, yeah. Gene Simmons has been wrong about a lot of things over the years. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah for sure. But you know, I, uh, but I, I also don't, I, you know, I love Kiss and, and, uh, I think, uh, Gene Simmons is pretty you know, underrated as a, as a, as a musician actually. Uh, so, um, and I appreciate the things he's done for like Wendy O. Williams. And then he, did he try it, even though he didn't maybe see it with Van Halen. Um, he certainly, I mean, he is credited with, you know, quote unquote, discovering them in a way. Yeah. Um, so he, he does have, um, you know, he, he has a nose for, for talent and, and or money. That's for sure. You know. Also the thing to note too, is that Van Halen, Actually, I think the, um, that Gene actually took exception to the band calling the, itself Van Halen. That was one of the things he took exception to as well. Huh. Uh, they, they'd actually been through a bunch of different names as they were coming up through the backyard party bar scene, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One, one name was Mammoth. Yep. But most interesting to me was original, they, had a, they were also entertaining the name Rat Salad. Yeah. Which yeah. was, uh, you know, obviously the Sabbath song, and sure. um, yeah, you can anyone out there can do a, just a little bit of research and find out that uh, Eddie Van Halen was a was hugely influenced by Tony Iommi, and you know had a lot of respect for his uh, songwriting abilities. And uh, yeah. you know, both bands actually toured together uh, in '78 for the for, to support for Van Halen's support of this of this very record we're discussing right now. Yeah, and I then that was kind of in the waning days of the first Aussie era with with Black Sabbath, and you know, it. it I have not heard, I've, I've read, and and been told many accounts of that tour. Uh, in every one of them, Van Halen wipes the floor with Black Sabbath every night. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine anyone really going on after Van Halen. Yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, but this is also kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the last person who's going to talk shit about Black Sabbath. But I think at that period, it's safe to say they were all kind of like <laughs> fat and drunk and like high on fucking blow or whatever else. So they pr probably certainly not Aussie. Um, you know, those guys were not at the top of their game. And obviously they, um, you know, it kind of they imploded, you know, shortly after that tour, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, I'm a. I have nothing but reverence for Sabbath, but uh, you know, you put you take a band, a shop worn, road weary band like Black Sabbath of that era, you know, all the drug problems, all the you know whatever personnel issues, and just being on tour so much together, and then you got these young bucks, like this young hungry band who's got one of the you know, guitar world innovators like shredding every night and some dude with swords like doing backflips, you know, like as the yeah. singer. <laughs> I don't, who the hell is going to go on after them? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, especially if you've been a band for, uh, you know, you've been touring at that level. And like you said, you're, all, you, you know, you, you kind of, um, I don't know, the energy, I feel like the energy wasn't there 
Chris Sabbath, but obviously they recaptured it when Dio joined. That's another story, obviously. But um, yeah, yeah, you know, these things happen. Yeah, actually, uh, we did a, uh, a, a Heaven and Hell uh, classic records episode. And we talked a lot about those, um, those like transitional years with Black Sabbath into the Dio era. Yeah, that's um, fun side note. Uh, so the guy who did the cover art for Heaven and Hell, his name was Lynn Curley. Um, and I interviewed him years and years ago about Heaven and Hell. He only did one other album cover in his entire career. Uh, and it was Blue, Blue Oyster Cult's Agents of Fortune. So I could see the know. similarities actually in the yeah. style. I mean, but two of the like most iconic record covers of all time. And that's like, that's like, I mean, he, the guy has had a career as a fine artist and an artist for, I mean, he, that, that black, that black Sabbath painting existed before, uh, heaven and hell. It was, he, he, he'd done that three or four years before. Um, but, uh, yeah, he only did, he, his work was only commissioned for two used i should say for two album covers and those are the two so pretty good track record you know that cover for the blue oyster cult record I've, i always found that to be like i can't put my finger on what it is exactly about that record cover but it's always seemed very sinister to me yeah oh it it, it is <laughs> it absolutely is yeah yeah i agree i agree completely um yeah, great, great, great record. And of course, they, that's the, the connection there too, because at some point in the 70s, there was the Black and Blue tour, right? Yeah. The Oyster Cult and Black Sabbath. I forget, I don't know what year that was, but yeah. Probably around the time of those, I think I think Agents of Fortune was 76 and what, Heaven and Hell was 80? Uh-huh. Uh, something like that, right? So somewhere in there, maybe. See, now I, I want to say that it was the... Um, What's the one with Burning for You on it by Blue Oyster Cult? Uh, has oh. Veteran of a Thousand Psychic Wars on it. Um, yeah. I think it might have uh, been that I, record, actually, for the Black and Blue tour. Yeah, I can picture it right now, and I can't even think of the name of the record. But, um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, the other thing to consider about this record is how incredibly successful it was on a financial level for the bands and uh you know to come out out of the gates with something like this and crush sales the way this band did i think is like like there was no ramping up period for van halen it's like i guess you can consider the the years they spent with no record deal as as the ramp up but once they got this record together and it was released it was like off to the races man i mean they you know people embrace this band like incredibly yeah man yeah it's uh they really um i mean if you think about it they really i mean the record really changed the face of what everyone was doing i mean it kind of launched the whole you know what we now call hair metal you know it kind of launched that whole thing and the whole guitar hero era i mean obviously the guitar playing is phenomenal on here and it was it was pretty much unheard of. I mean, Randy Rhodes existed at that time, but he was still playing the Starwood with the quiet riot, you know, yeah. he didn't, uh, no one had really heard him outside of LA until he broke out with Ozzy, which is a couple of years after the first Van Halen record. Um, so Eddie, uh, you know, um, he, he gets a lot of credit and he deserves, he deserves it. You know, I mean, the guy, the whole, I mean, the whole, I don't want to sell anyone short, the whole band, I mean, the, the kind of, change the face of, of, of hard rock and, and, um, you know, um, 
metal in a way, you know, I mean, cause that this, all that stuff comes from, you know, all your, your, um, rats, Motley Crue's poison, all that stuff. I mean, none, none of those bands, I don't think any of those bands would really exist without Van Halen, you know? Definitely. I mean, they, they kind of like, uh, walked the line between hard rock and heavy metal in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, yeah. yeah. You know, there's, it's not, uh, you know, it's not Judas Priest, but there's elements that can, that are similar to Judas Priest. And um, it's definitely has a heavy dose of rock and roll. Um, and it's not like heavy as like Sabbath was. Right. But I think just the extremity of the way that Eddie Van Halen played the guitar was that projected far into the future. And I would, you know, you mentioned that absolutely they were an influence on the L.A., uh, you know, kind of like Hollywood uh, hair metal scene. But I, I have to say that I listen to Dr. No from the Bad Brains and I hear fucking Van Halen and his guitar style. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I, I, I guarantee you he listened to that, to, the, to this record. I mean, I, I, think, I think it was hard. I, I would imagine at the time, I mean, obviously I was, you know, a little infant but I would imagine it was, it would hard to, it's hard to be a guitar player playing any sort of like rock based music, heavier rock type music, have this record come out and have it not change your way of thinking somehow. Like even if it, even if it was like, even if it was as basic as like, Holy shit, what is that guy doing? Like it it changed. I mean, the whole mentality shifted when this record came out and it was, it, he kind of launched the era of the new style of guitar hero, you know, like the, the sort of, um, you know, what, what's, what, you know, maybe had begun with like Clapton or something and then kind of went several levels up with Jimi Hendrix. Um, and then this again, we have it happening again um, with Eddie Van Halen and then ultimately, you know, within a couple of years, Randy Rhodes, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny you mentioned Eric Clapton because uh, Eddie Van Halen cites Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton, Clapton as being uh, heavy influences on him, specifically uh, Clapton's work in Cream. You know, yeah, from- yeah. Yeah, That's actually can, uh, Cream. Cream is actually the only band that Eric Clapton was in that I really would listen to. You know what I mean? Me too. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. But I can hear it because uh, in between, like the sort of like you know pyrotechnic stuff that Eddie Van Halen would do, you can hear the kind of bluesy sensibility that is very much rooted in that kind of Clapton, Jimmy Page um, style. You know? Were you aware of uh, a record called Starfleet Project? <laughs> that Van, Eddie Van Halen played on? No. Yeah, man. It, it's uh it's Brian May and Friends. Oh, okay. What what year was it? Uh that's a good question. I'm going to estimate that that came out in the early 80s. Okay. All right. I I maybe okay, it I that sounds vaguely familiar now that you mentioned Brian May. Yeah. Um yeah. It's like a, a pre like G3 type deal. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, I, you know, it's, I, I talk about this record store a lot on this show, but in my my hometown of Carmel, New York, back in the day in the '80s, there was a record store called the Book and Record Store. Mm. It's not like it's pretty much, uh, you know what you're you know what you're in for when you walk in there. Yeah, you can't accuse them of false advertising. Yeah, and um, they had books and records. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know, not, <laughs> it was the only place you could find hard rock, heavy metal. Um, there was like Ramones records in there, Motorhead. Uh, I remember seeing Venom, black metal in there. Um, and then 
the other side of the, of the of the room, there was all the fantasy and sword and sorcery and horror novels that I, you know, got yeah. deeply into when I was a kid. You know, H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard's Conan, you know, Michael Moorcock, like all that stuff. Um, so I remember seeing Starfleet Project because it had this like really sick like album cover that had like, you know, like rockets and fucking spaceships on it and shit like that and it was yeah and then and then i looked on the back and it was eddie van halen and brian may and um all and some other like dudes that uh, roger taylor from queen also played drums on it too and uh just like some other random like like studio session guys played on the record too and it was it was pretty cool it was like uh it's not it sounds extremely dated obviously because it was like a side project and it was um done with the intention of making a uh, progressive record. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it was uh, yeah. longer songs. There was no real hooks on it. It was more of like, uh, like their interpretation of making like a yes or King Crimson style record. So it was boring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I, I mean, I, I dig yes. I like King Crimson. So, you know, if, I have to be in the mood to listen to that stuff, but yeah, it was yeah. um, it wasn't as good, let's say, as either of those bands because they're no, I yeah yeah I their bread the and butter way. was making that shit. I mean, that was in their soul, you know, making music like that. And Brian May and Eddie Van Halen are incredible musicians, but that's not their calling, really, you know. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I I I, I don't mean to shit on Yes or King Crimson. I appreciate both those bands too. I just don't. I appreciate there's certain songs that I really like, but then. I just can't, you know, as far as like an entire catalog thing, I just never, um, they lose me at some point. Yeah, definitely. You know? Um, uh, oh, so I want to go back. Uh, so I, I, the, um, I, I just found this in my notes here that I, cause I mentioned the tone loke thing for yeah. Janie's. And so I'm going to, I found this little bit on the, you know, from classic rock magazine, their website. Um, so I'm going to read this. This is a quote here. Uh, reportedly, Van Halen's management charged Tone Loke $5,000 for the right to use the sample, but they didn't get permission from the band. Oh, man. When the song became popular and the members of Van Halen heard it, they sued for a piece of it. It's believed they received $180,000 in an out-of-court settlement. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that go. was uh, probably right at the spearhead of the whole sampling, uh, you know, battles that were going on. Yeah, that was 89. So Jamie's Crying would have been 11 years old at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. And then another thing I, that I didn't, that I kind of had forgot about or didn't like, I'm the one, which is like the super fast and like boogie rock track on the record. Yeah. Um, four non blondes covered it for the Airheads soundtrack. <laughs> wow what does yeah, that even and I sound like it. i listen to it it's it's weird <laughs> i can imagine it's weird yeah i mean i think you know there's a good reason that van halen plays these songs i mean there's many good reasons but one of them is so you don't have to yeah, you know yeah exactly dude totally <laughs> I, yeah, no one no one has effectively uh covered any of their material really in my opinion you know yeah however yeah, uh yeah. real obscure uh, both Jay and I are familiar with this band, La Gratona, from Boston, yes. Massachusetts. And uh, they are an incredibly obscure band uh, through no fault of their own because they were in a great band. But they covered Atomic Punk. as uh, mm. on, And there's a live 
YouTube clip of them on, um, there's like a, uh, Billy Ruane YouTube, uh, catalog and, uh, Billy Ruane was a, a guy, a man about town in Boston throughout the eighties and nineties who passed away a number of years ago. And, uh, he had a video archive of every show that happened within those two decades, I think. And uh, La Gratona actually does a pretty good version of the song. I mean, Dana Ambrose is a great guitar player. You know, if there's yeah. anyone out there that could pull something like that off, it, it was definitely him. You know, that's cool. I want to check that out. I, I, you know, that reminds me. So when I first moved to LA, there was a Van Halen cover band called Atomic Punk, and uh, they did only Diamond Dave era, except for they did one. Hagar song from 51 to 50. I can't remember. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but anyway, the, the, the singer and guitar player of Atomic Punk, at least them, maybe, uh, maybe the entire band or one other, or the bass player and drummer, one of, I don't know, but definitely the guitar player and the singer, um, went on to be in Steel Panther. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. And they were, and they were quite good. I should add. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not a fan of Steel. I mean, I, I know people like that band, and I, I, it's just not my cup of tea. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I have listened to hours of their material in the van on tour, uh, <laughs> because uh, some of the the members of of the the rock band I play in uh, enjoy them, so we do we listen to them in the van, and they, you know, they're they're great players, man. I can't take on on a just a sheer talent level. That band is pretty, uh, you know, pretty elite in my opinion. You know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They, and they were. I want to find out how many of them were in it because I know for a fact it's a guitar playing the singer, and it, I wonder if it's all of them. I'm kind of curious. I want to kind of figure. I want to figure that out. Um, but um, yeah, they were great, man. They were really good. That'd be funny if it was the entire band that just became yeah. Steel Panther. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> So, I mean, I could go on and on and on about Eddie Van Halen's accomplishments, and that could be like a whole other episode, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, – oh, just one thing I wanted to add, to add cause I, um, Little Dreamer, I love that song. Um, and, uh, like, the opening riff is just fantastic. I think it's one of the most memorable Van Halen riffs. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, as we mentioned with Michael Anthony's – when his – when those kind of – vocals come in michael anthony and i think it's michael anthony and david lee roth together um but it seems like michael anthony is almost at the forefront it might be just him but when that that moment comes in that ah man that song i i, I it's great i just i just want to get that in there because i i love that song he's got the voice of an angel michael anthony he really does he really and, does and yeah. the, the the my favorite thing about that is he's like this burly like guy you know He's kind of like this, uh, you know, like kind of. And Mikey cut out. Yeah, like you know, um, Michael Anthony's kind of like this burly dude, you know, like he doesn't look like the kind of guy that would sing like that. Yeah, he, he's all he's. I've met him. He's he's um, he's he's a uh, he is a, a burly dude, but he's very he's very short. Yeah. You know, yeah. You would still imagine him having like a different type of voice, though. You know what I mean? As a singing voice. Yeah. Voice. No. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, you're right. It does not fit. It doesn't fit with the uh, body type. <laughs> yeah. So, one of the things too is we talked about fair warning. I mean, I, I am so like antsy 
to have put this as a classic record, but yeah. I had to go with Van Halen's debut over this one, at least for now, because I think that, you know, give respect where respect is due. This was like a powerful re- debut record for any band. It, I mean, we can, we can cite the fi- facts and figures about how many times this went platinum and achieve, it achieved diamond status, you know, yeah. the lists, the superlatives, like all the, all the stuff about this record. So that had to be the number one classic Van Halen record, in my opinion. But as far as like listening and just emotional impact, I'd have to say that Fair Warning is a very close second to this album. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, um, it's funny. I, I would like to mention that, um, Van Halen one and, and, and fair warning are, um, are the only two Van Halen records that I own two copies of each. Really? <laughs> yeah. I had to have, have got to have a backup. Yeah. Nice. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. So then those, those are the only, t- all, the, all the other ones, I just have one copy. The, these ones, two, two of each. Uh, <laughs> I am. Um, this was the first Van Halen record I bought on vinyl, actually. Yeah. You know, as yeah. a young young boy uh, shoveling snow in the uh, tri-state area winters, the brutal tri-state area winters. Uh, yeah. I think records were only like seven or eight dollars back then, but uh, but you know, I I remember when this came out, and I was like, oh, I like Van Halen, and I bought this on vinyl, and um, as a young kid, and then. You know the the Van Halen one and Van Halen two I had gotten as uh, on cassette tape, and yeah. uh, later purchased those on vinyl as well. And to this day, I actually don't do not own a version of Diver Down on any format. Yeah, I I, I bought one um, way later. Like I mean, like probably within the last ten years, just because I'm a completist, but. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really like that record. I, I, it's, it's, um, I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, it's like half of its covers. I think a full half of the record is covers five out of 10, I think are covers. And, uh, I just not, I'm not into it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but some of the, I mean, I think on, on fair warning, uh, there was only maybe two songs that actually got released as singles. Yeah, I guess it would have been Mean Street and Unchained, right? Uh, so This Is Love is another song, oh, I think. right. Uh, yeah. Hey, oh, that's right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. But uh, there's such a list of powerful tracks, just killer songs on this record, man. Mean Streets, you know, Dirty Movies. That's probably one of my favorites. Yeah, what is the story? Like, I, you know what? I well, Did you ever, what is the story? Why is Dirty Movies in quotes? It's the only song that's in, only song title that's in quotes. I don't know. That's a good question. And you know what? Maybe maybe there needs to be a follow-up episode on this record. I think that's yeah. a good call. Because I, I feel I like there's a story here. There's some, you know, maybe you and I can both start working on putting together a uh, you know, some sort of narrative about this record because it's it's such like uh I mean for Van Halen, it's like an underground record almost, you know. Yeah. No, oh, I can dig up some shit on this record for sure. Yeah. I think uh, we should, I think we, we owe it we should to do, the listeners. We should do a separate episode. Yeah, hundred percent. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we should do that. We owe it to you guys to do a separate episode on this record, man, because it's such a important record in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah, there's like uh, you know, hear about it later. That's like one of my favorite songs. 
you know, Van Halen songs. Actually, I would say, let me see. I would say like four of the tracks on this record are in my top 10 favorite Van Halen tracks. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty phenomenal, man. It's pretty phenomenal. I'm looking, I'm holding my vinyl copy right now. Um, and the, the inner sleeve, it's got that, uh, you know, that graffiti quote that someone said, fair warning, Lord will strike that poor boy down, turned from hunted into hunter, went to hunt somebody down. Yeah, see, that's what I mean, man. That's, that's so fucking metal, man. That's like such a yeah. brutal, like, lyric. And um, it's their, the only record that is as dark as, the, as this. This is their only really dark record they have. Everything else is about, like, you know, like being, all, being awesome, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, and of course, it's the band's slowest. This is like their, it, it, it definitely sold, like, incredible, you know, good numbers, but it took, like, a long time, apparently, for this record to catch on with people. Yeah, yeah. The artwork was uh, the um, it's called uh, this guy named William Turalek did the art for the record. I mean, it was taken from a um, from a painting, and it's like yeah. So it, it it's funny because it looks like a chill like it's from a children's book or something, but it's got all these brutal scenes of like a guy getting his ass kicked, and, yeah. like slamming into a brick wall, and, like oh, you know what I mean? All this gnarly shit, um, and it's uh, uh, you know someone else being put through a fucking torture device. Yeah, um, it, but it, it looks like it's from yeah a children's book, <laughs> and and you know none of the, none of their records went in this direction ever. I mean, it's like I don't know that, that that's why I'm so interested in it. I think it's a great record on top of everything else, but also, you know what what why did the band write an album like this? Like why did their creative energy go into such a, a dark path? You know, can we get can we get Diamond Dave on the show? I'll work on it, man. <laughs> you imagine that? That'd be amazing. Yeah. Or Michael Anthony? What's he? I mean, what's Michael? What's Michael Anthony doing? He's hanging out, right? I mean, he's not even in Van Halen right now. Yeah, no, and I think Chicken Foot is done, or whatever the name of that stupid band was. Oh, jeez, um, yeah. yeah. I, I almost <laughs> I put that out of my mind, actually. <laughs> so he might be around, man. Maybe he's maybe he's um. Maybe he'll be down to talk. He can give us some insight. You know, it's funny, though. David Lee Roth strikes me as the kind of guy, though, if, you know, say, you know, I was ever able to, like, run into him somewhere, and I was like, hey, Dave, you want? can you want to, you know? I feel like he's the kind of guy who would do something like that. Yeah, and not only would he do it, I've interviewed Dave a long yeah. time ago, a uh, long time ago, uh, pro pro late 90s, probably. Oh, wow. And uh, um, he... Not only would he probably do it, he would also, you, you could also probably go back after you've done your interview, you could probably go back and find quotes like the same, like he, he would have said the same thing that he said 30 years ago or, or almost 40 years ago about the record. Like he's been recycling his shit forever. His, 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 like his routine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even in interviews, even in interviews. Well, I've heard him on other podcasts many times. Like he was on the Joe Rogan Experience a couple times, and and that's like one of my favorite episodes. And uh, yeah, I got to hear that one. Yeah, he um, he's like um, like there's there's dudes who play music, like musicians, and then there's like entertainers. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I think Dave is cut from the same cloth as a guy like Frank Sinatra or like uh, you know Dean Martin. 
um, you know, Elvis, even, you know, little Richard, like these guys who are like, they're, they're, they're showmen, you know, they're entertainers, you know? I, I, David Lee Roth could have existed on the vaudeville circuit and been a huge star back then. Like that's his style. Like, you know what I mean? I think that, I think you, you nailed it. Like he is an entertainer first and foremost. It happens to be, you know, heavy rock music that because of the time and place that he was in, that's what he ended up doing. But, um, it could have been anything. The guy's just a born entertainer, you know? And those fucking kicks, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, a lifetime of doing like martial arts, man. That dude like yeah. throws these fucking kicks, man. He's like fucking Bruce Lee or some shit, man. Yeah, it's uh, the, 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 the splits are like uh, painful to watch, but amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, you know, I never, I never had that kind of flexibility, really. You know, no, <laughs> Me neither, but I also never, but I also like, I should point out that I also never had, like, I watched that. And I, okay, so like, here's the example. Like, I would see Eddie Van Halen playing guitar and I'd be like, wow, like, I, I wish I could do that. You know, that's impressive. Yeah. I, but I'd see David Lee Roth do those jumps and stuff and I'd go, like, wow, that's impressive. But I never, I never occurred to me, like, I wish I could do that. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I just, I just, you just kind of instantly know, um, like, even with Eddie Van Halen, not like, not like I could ever get close to becoming like that, but at least it seems like, achievable somehow you know <laughs> but, but but seeing like david lee roth jump off the thing i'm like i just even knew as a little kid like i'll, I'll never do that ever i don't even want i wouldn't even like i won't even try i won't even try to do that see that's the thing about van eddie van halen though is like what you're saying it's like i never felt like like there's certain players out there that uh you know you just you just it does feel like it's out of your reach that it's this yeah. d- divine talent yeah you know yeah 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 no no but i mean but but that's what i mean I, i'm not saying i could reach that level i'm saying <laughs> i'm saying, I'm saying I, w- I i think i had that the desire i wish i could do that yeah i never wished i could jump it was just the jump the split thing just seemed so i just i never even it never even occurred to me that that would be something i would try <laughs> yeah. where i'd be like i will like you know i will you know spend 30 years trying and failing to get as good as any <laughs> you know what I mean? imagine if you could do those splits though yeah, no, are you kidding me? I would do them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've uh, sufficiently covered this material here. Yeah, yeah. Real proud of us. Yeah, man. We did a great job. <laughs> and uh, thanks for taking uh, the time to do this. I appreciate it, Jay. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me on the show. That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.